All right, let's jump into our last book for today and the last book of our poetry and wisdom literature section, the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. It's called both. introductory matters uh, to begin with here. Just a quick reminder, you just saw this last hour, but I put this with all of our, our wisdom books. So we're looking now at the wisdom literature circle here and how Song of Songs is going to deal with uh, love and sex as it relates to God or how God views that. Everything is from the, the viewpoint or the worldview of God. And of course, all aspects of, of life are related to God, including family and society, which is where this would fit in, the Song of Solomon. We mentioned last class also that uh, Song of Solomon, along with Lamentations, are part of the uh, Megaloth, or the scrolls. Song of Solomon was read on uh, Passover. Now, the reason for that is probably related to the interpretation portion that we're going to look at in a minute. And that's the idea that it was uh, viewed allegorically between God and, and people. So I'll say more about that when we get to that portion. The outlook of Song of Songs, as uh, James Smith says, he says, To turn from the gloom of Ecclesiastes, which again, that's a little bit of a overstatement. It has, it has some merit to it, but um, the whole view of Ecclesiastes is not just gloom and doom. But to turn from the gloom of Ecclesiastes to the exhilaration of the Song of Solomon is like stepping out of the wilderness into the promised land, like the bright shining of the sun after a storm. One can maintain a healthy balance in Bible study by studying these books back to back. Ecclesiastes focuses on the intellect of man, his mental outlook on life. The Song of Solomon speaks about the emotions of man, in particular the emotion of love. <laughs> now it reminds me, interestingly enough, that anybody remember in Proverbs... Uh, what are the two things that we said that the book of Proverbs really focuses on? They both start with M. There's a synonym for one of the words right there. That's what reminded me of it. <coughs> yeah, mental and mental and moral acumen. Okay, so mental and moral aspects are, are the two the two parts that, that Proverbs is really trying to drive home that we would uh, think and, and behave. So beliefs and behavior is another way kind of looking at beliefs and behavior. So it shouldn't surprise us. It's all wisdom. It's all based on, on those concepts, right? So Ecclesiastes, he says, intellect, mental, and Song of Solomon, uh, the emotions of, of man. So God is concerned about all aspects of this, and he wants us to be a, a complete whole uh, unity. Uh, Darushi says the song provides commentary on the innocence and beauty of chapter 2, it, of Genesis 2. It highlights the royal nature of weddings and encourages every king and his queen to enjoy pure love in marriage. So let's look at the title. The title of the book, Song of Songs. The title is derived from the first words, which is a superlative, the best of the best. Just like with uh, vanity of vanities, right? So Song of Songs. Um, Solomon's finest songs is actually how the Holman puts it. Now, the HCSB, Holman Christian Standard Bible, if you don't know, um, is being revised and reissued as the CSB. They're dropping the Holman, which is the Christian Standard Bible. <coughs> so we'll see if they keep that in the 
new one. The electronic version is already released. If you're interested, uh, I mean, it's already on the App Store. Just look for Christian Standard Bible. Um, it's still by, it's still published by Broadman Holman. They dropped that part off the, the title of it. But they put Solomon's finest songs. So they uh, they flesh out. That would be called like a dynamic equivalent translation. They flesh out the meaning instead of being so literal with it. Um, the idea here that some would argue is that <coughs> if Solomon wrote this, okay, it, it may be an ideal and not necessarily depicting real love relationship that he had with any of his 700 wives or 700 concubines. Part of the problem with, with this is that it's hard for us to imagine that Solomon really knew true love when you think about him and a thousand women. That could be tempered a little bit by the idea that most of those women were married for political reasons. Um, they were married to basically to have peace in the kingdom. So I don't know that they were really like, you know, wives. I mean, politically they were. They had some status, but, you know. Anyway, in the Septuagint, it has the same name, okay? And the next point here about the, the Latin is where I, I started to get confused earlier with Ecclesiastes, but the name Canticles is used for the book and some Catholic versions derived from the Latin. So again, you go from Hebrew to Greek to Latin, primarily with Jerome, um, and then that's where they get letters from. The author and the date. <coughs> the opening verse attributes the song to Solomon. Okay, he says Solomon's finest song. That's how Holman says it. Internal and external evidence supports this claim. Now. Gleason Archer writes that the preposition lay, which means to, is the only convenient way of expressing possession or authorship in Hebrew, where the same author may have composed many other works. Now, Gleason Archer is an expert in the field. I think, um, hopefully I'm not misquoting him. He's passed away now, but I think he worked and was uh, proficient in more than a dozen different languages through Hebrew, Semitic, Akkadian, all that type of stuff. Um, I say that only to say his comment has some validity to it based on who he is. All right. <coughs> so his point is that the the Hebrew writers, the the scriptures, by this preposition, all right, and so it, it could come down to this one little word, all right, or letter in Hebrew. Uh, you just lay it like this. That's the letter. And so it means two. Um, and it denotes authorship in, in this context. And so we have him writing this, Ecclesiastes, etc. <coughs> Proponents of a late date, non-Solmonic authorship, base their arguments primarily on internal linguistic grounds. And so what that means is people say, no, I don't think Solomon wrote it. And it's because of what's inside the text. So there's, there's two ways of looking at things. There's external and there's internal. So internal, we're talking about what the text actually says, the words in the Bible. External, we're talking about, you know, other stuff outside that, culture, context, historical, etc. So certain words from Greece and Aramaic, that's one of the reasons. So there's some words in there that, like, no, that's a, a word from Greece. That's a word from, um, that's an Aramaic word. That's not Hebrew. And then the other one, <coughs> or let's see, Arthur, or Archer's response is that, this is inconclusive, 
and the use of such words would come from Solomon's various translations, etc. No, I, I don't see how uh, that's not a good response because think about it. He was uh, the wisest man. We already know he had people from he had the Queen of Sheba coming to visit him. He had people from all over the world coming to visit him. He had an empire world, so he was trading with all of these nations. And so, why wouldn't they have picked up words and, and whatever else? He also he collected uh, the proverbs, right? And he had over a thousand songs of uh, what three thousand proverbs, right? So he's collecting all this stuff. So it shouldn't be a surprise that there's some words being picked up, right? Um, you guys have picked up Greek words without even knowing them. Archer further argues that the following are positive evidences for Solomon being the author. Um, the interest in natural history, and he references us to go over to, to Kings to see how um, what Solomon was doing with his, uh, his involvement in, in so many different uh, aspects of the world. And then the geographic references, he says, are pre-930 B.C. What he's saying here is, Again, and this takes a bunch of studying just to figure this out. He's saying what different places are called in the Song of Solomon are what they were called by and known by before 930. In other words, in Solomon's time. Later on, they came to be known by other names. Does that make sense? Um, and lack of division in the kingdom is the other point. Uh, if it was after Solomon, it's like there's no indication in the book. There's no talking about it. Now, they wouldn't have to talk about it, but... There's no indication that the north and the south is already split. And that's what happened after Solomon. <coughs> so, approaching the book. Some fast facts for you. Uh, like the book of Esther, there is no mention of God in the book. Okay. Uh, I think, again, I made a, an error last uh, hour. I said that in Ecclesiastes, which is ridiculous because then at the end I was talking about fearing God, right? So we, I mean, we read verses. So I just just uh, recalled that. <coughs> I can't strike it from the audio, but this, well, and this isn't on the same audio. This is a separate audio. Um, but I'm correcting it with you now. Um, it's, it's Esther that there's no mention of God. I'll tell you something that slightly encourages me. Um, I talked about Bruce Walsky a, a lot last class period. <coughs> I mentioned him today, but I talked a lot last class period about him. Um, I was listening to a lecture of his one time, and asking me some questions, and he was like, yeah, I don't know, I'd have to go back and look that up again. I was like, wow, the guy's like 90 years old, he's been teaching for 50 years, uh, he translates Proverbs, got commentaries, he's got to go look stuff up he doesn't even know. I'm like, hey, I don't need the answer. Um, and then uh, there was another time I was listening to something he was saying, and um, basically he did the same thing as I did, like, not exactly, but like, he said something wrong, he had to correct it. So anyways, you know, we're all fallible, and, um, that's why I have, like, notes up here, right? Yeah. <coughs> All right, just don't put on the quiz to, or test. Or <laughs> All right, so of the 1,005 songs that Solomon wrote, this is the only surviving one. Until the Reformation, it was read as an allegory by Jews and Christians. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read stuff like that, I'm like, really? I, give me the data. I want to go check every single thing. Did every single person really think it was an allegory up until the Reformation? it doesn't mean that they're all right um, but it definitely puts the burden of proof 
something different. You know what I'm saying? Like it's the earliest people. So my question is like, well, what did Paul think of it? What did Jesus think of it? You know, did Jesus think of it an allegory? Um, so anyways, I don't, I don't know that Jesus specifically said anything about it that, that we have recorded for us. So the Council of Constantinople, 550 AD, forbade teaching the book as anything but an allegory. So you are not allowed to teach it in anything but that. There's many examples in the ancient Near East, especially the Egyptians, of love poems that are very similar to it. Some people argue that it's just stolen love poetry from ancient times. But, um, now, I was going to hold that, but that's what some people argue. It is true also that, this isn't up there, but uh, the Jews did not let um, their young men read it until I think they were 30. I thought I'd read 18 at one point, but I, I saw the other day 30. So, yeah, I don't know if all of you are eligible to do the class today, but we'll try to keep it PG. Alright, interpretations, okay? So here are uh, six interpretations of the book. Uh, how, you, how you view this is going to determine what your uh, ideas are from the book, how you teach it, what you get out of it. So the allegorical is the first interpretation. So Solomon is either Yahweh, that'd be Old Testament, that'd be you know the Jewish view, or Christ. That's how Christians would allegorize it. The details are spiritualized throughout. So all the different things, they don't really refer to these things. So you know, it's really not a woman, it's not her neck, it's not her hair, it's not, no, these are all different things, okay? It's spiritualized. Um, the historical is that it's based upon natural events. It's a man, it's a woman. They're talking about their, their relationship, their love, marriage, sex, etc. Drama, that there's two or three characters in this drama, all right, and we, we learn uh, from that. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, typological, that's the idea that is based upon an actual event that points to the love God has for his people. So that there really is, you know, the man, the woman, okay, it's either Solomon or someone else, and this woman, this love, um, but it points to something bigger. Lyrical, that's a secular love song. Um, lyric expression of human love in poetry. The difference here is, or the point of difference is that there, there's no plot. There's no love story. It's, it's just, it's a song. Okay? Kind of like if you were to write a love song right now, but it's not about anybody in particular. It's just, it's a song. It's not you and your, your spouse or anything. Um, and last one is cultic. Um, some argue that it's a sacred marriage between the gods enacted by a priestly couple. Alright, now that one might be like the least heard of So here's your options for it, all right? The most prevalent is definitely the first one, the allegorical. Uh, I remember hearing sermons when I was a young Christian, and I mean, they were just completely allegorical, and I was like, this is what it's really about. Um, the other one is the uh, typological, is pretty common. Wolke talks about the character version, or, or the drama one, he said drama, I'm not the idea here is there is a choice between two or three characters. And here, Walke really is, is going to blend a couple of these ideas together. So if you held to the two-character drama, it's Solomon and the Shunammite girl. If you hold to the three-character one, which is what he holds to, um, which I think Darushi pushes back against it. Um, <coughs> so it would be, there's a rustic shepherd and the Shunammite that uh, have the true love, and then Solomon 
serves as the foil. So this is a powerful rich guy coming in that doesn't have the real love, and it's really the, the, the shepherd boy and the girl that have the true love. And it's not this powerful king coming in, you know, with all this pomp and circumstance. And he argues this because he says, whenever Solomon is mentioned three times in the book, it's always negative. The, the Shunammite is an exploited girl, and Solomon comes in. Solomon comes in from a desert on a chariot with 60 mighty men in three cities. And the Shunammite tells Solomon to keep his money. And so um, and you can just jot this down. You can think about it as you go through. That, that's what we'll see here. So uh, in one one, Solomon expresses the love that he wished he had in the rustic shepherd. So basically, Wolsey thinks that um, Solomon is thinking about love that he wished that he had, but he doesn't. Shepherd boy, who's not rich and doesn't have all the wealth and pomp and circumstance that Solomon has, does have it. So that's what he's saying there. He also, to add a further comment on that, um, holds to the the typology. So he's he's got the drama and the typology together. So <coughs> he thinks that this is about love. Um, it is. Uh, this, this drama story that Solomon is a part of, and it points forward to God. So the difference between that and between typology and allegory is that in allegory, um, I'm not just going to try to say every single thing they try to spiritualize, but the majority of it. So everything has to be spiritualized. In the typology, you don't have to spiritualize. You don't have to spiritualize her neck and her legs and her whatever else. It doesn't have to become something else. It's just uh, the big point points to something uh, beyond that. So, <coughs> with the structure, um, Dorsey, the same book I mentioned earlier, okay, this um, literary structure of the Old Testament by David Dorsey. So he argues that the, the center of the book is 3, 6 to 5, 1, uh, their wedding day. So the opening words of mutual love and desire, closing words of mutual love and desire form the outside. The young man's invitation to the woman, the young woman's invitation to the man, the woman's nighttime search, the woman's uh, nighttime search, and in the middle is their wedding day. So each of Dorsey's units begins with a change in perspective and with the lovers experiencing tension. But each unit closes with the lovers reunited with a sense of tranquility. Uh, Jerushi, however, argues that Dorsey's proposal does not account for the repeated refrain, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now, this is what I was alluding to earlier when we were studying Ecclesiastes. In, in the four places listed up there, 2, 7, 3, 5, 5, 8, and 8, 4, it says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And that is mentioned... Uh, in 2, 7, and 3, 5. And then in 5, 8, it says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am pricked with love. And then in 8, 4, it goes back and repeats basically the first line. Now, that phrase, I will just use that as an aside for a second here, uh, do not awaken or stir up love until the proper time. <coughs> I use that often when, uh, when I taught this. I actually, uh, I think I taught part of this, or maybe I just used the phrase as an illustration. Uh, to young people, don't awaken love until the proper time. Um, the book of Solomon is definitely about love within its proper bounds. And we can do things to um, awaken you know, our love, our desires, our whatever. Um, 
So there's this exhortation here that there's a, a proper time. I guess we can kind of go to Ecclesiastes, right? The time for everything, right? Um, and you need to wait for that proper time. So I, I've always uh, exhort and push that idea, uh, especially to young men, all young people, but especially you know to young men in our culture, but it might go beyond the church. So, um, <coughs> so because of this, because of that refrain, it occurs four times. So basically, what Darushi is saying is, Dorsey, that looks good, but uh, these four things, uh, they don't work in your structure. So you got to tweak it, buddy. And so Darushi, uh, you know, tweaks himself, and he puts it this way. So his is, love awakened, the progressing toward marriage, the bride's desire, invitation, and dream are lost. Love enjoyed. Uh, their consummation, the wedding, is right there, still in the middle. And then coming back out, the delights of love, and the love is affirmed here at the end. And so you can see he has these refrains. So refrain, 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 and refrain. So he has these refrains uh, marking the end of these four uh, portions. So he says the book clearly uses framing devices for the front and the back of the book. Both use the vineyard metaphor. Mention or note the speech of the brothers and repeat the statement of embrace and reassert the refrain of adjuration. So what he's saying is that these four things are mentioned in the beginning and the end. We're back to the bookend thing. Okay, So they kind of hem us in, and then you got these other refrains that are mentioned throughout. 4.16 to 5.1 includes the couple's declaration of consummation on their wedding night stands as the exact center and climax of the song, with 60 verses on each side. That's uh, quoting from Davidson, who wrote an article in this journal, Jets, J-A-T-S. I'm not actually sure what journal that is, but Journal of Theological Studies, American, American, Series, Technical, so, but Davison is a is a Hebrew scholar. So, um, and he's written some books and commentaries. All right, figurative language. There's a lot of figurative language in in the book, and just a few uh, examples from the bride. Here are some metaphors. There's metaphors and similes for both the bride and the and the groom. So, um, here's some of the metaphors. You know, your eyes are like doves, uh, roses, doves, lilies among the brambles, eyes are doves again, lips drip nectar, your tongue is honey, uh, locks garden, locks spring, probably uh, sexual um, euphemisms there, orchard of pomegranates, henna nard, uh, fountain of well stream, belly is a heap of wheat surrounded by lilies. Anybody like to use these? Um, <laughs> your eyes are pools, your head is a crown, your walls, um, I, I pull on a website all the time and your hair is just, you know, black like a so metaphors for the groom um, his name is like oil is a statue of myrrh cluster of henna apple among the forest trees produce is sweet fruit love is a banner young stag a gazelle head is a gold lizard okay so all of these different aspects okay alabaster column this is like strong you know you strong legs man this is a um, a literal um Representation that somebody uh, uh, drew of, of, of this woman. Um, so she had the, the goat in her hair, and, <laughs> and then uh, this one here. 
have uh, two minutes for you there. <laughs> so uh, the message of the book, um, let's look at what the, the message is for a moment. Going back to uh, Bruce Walke for a few minutes with for the idea of intimacy. Um, and he talks about this book, and, and he puts it into a uh, category of, of these four uh, alliterated uh, D words. But he talks about devotion to one another, experience within an exclusive marriage relationship. Um, the, and he makes the point that this is like a public commitment that you know people know. So, but devoted to one another. There's this devotion aspect that they are, are um, in, in it together. They're, they're invested in this thing. He talks about the decision made. That uh, this this girl has made this decision. Now he mentions in um, in the the book here. There's a few questions that kind of need to be answered. Like, why is the the dad not hooking this girl up? Like, why is there no arranged marriage? That's what happens. Like, the, the dad gets the, the husband for the girl. That doesn't happen. Um, so Walkie thinks, well, maybe the dad's dead. Otherwise, that's what he should be doing. And if the dad is dead, though, then the older brothers are supposed to do this. But what do we find in, in the text uh, that the brothers are doing? The brothers are exploiting her. They've got her out doing hard labor instead of finding her, her husband. And so she, to some degree, kind of has to take matters into her own hands, is what he's saying here. So she seeks out her own marriage. So in chapter 8, 11, and 12, we read that... Solomon owned a vineyard in Baal Hamon. He blessed the vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for his fruit a thousand pieces of silver. I have my own vineyard. The one thousand are for you, Solomon, but two hundred for those who guard its roots. You who dwell in the garden, companion, are listening for your voice. Let me hear you. So we'll, it just ends at verse 12, actually. So the, the woman uh, saying about Solomon's um, vineyard here, that uh, after their brothers leased the vineyard from Solomon, and they placed the Shugamite bride, the girl, there to work. So their agreement required them to pay a thousand pieces of silver to the owner, Solomon, and allowed them, the caretakers, to keep 200 for themselves. And so um, they, they have her, she's working this vineyard, and so she's deciding, like, well, then I'm going to find my own now because they're not taking care of me. So Solomon uh, also, Wolke argues this, that he has his own harem, so he doesn't really know uh, true love. Now, we have to admit, uh, when we make those kinds of statements, that um, obviously it's an analysis and evaluation, right? Um, we don't know the whole story. We don't know all the facts. Do we actually know that Solomon doesn't know what real love is? I mean, no, we don't know that, right? So um, he may very well be capable of real love, and he may actually have very much had a real love relationship. Um, exactly how that played out with 999 other women, I'm not sure. But um, it doesn't completely discount it. So then he talks about the dignity aspect, the uniqueness of each other demonstrated in chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. That they're both separate individuals. They're unique individuals uh, themselves. And so they come together devoted to one another. And so, 
like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among uh, the young women, like an apricot tree among the trees of the forest, so is my love among the young men. I delight to sit in the shade, and the sweetest sweets of my face. And so here, uh, they have this dignity. They're treated as a person, not, not just a body. Um, he talks, well, he says the fact that it begins with her eyes in chapter 4 as he's describing her. Um, shows that he's not just this lustful fiend, um, but he cares about her and her person. Uh, the idea of a banner, uh, that's a war banner, and it, and it speaks of protection. Like when you sing that, you know, um, God is a banner over you, uh, that means he needs your protection. Um, and so that that aspect. And then the, the fourth aspect is uh, dialogical. Um, the fact that he says that they're constantly talking. They're transferring physical intimacy into human and spiritual intimacy. They're humanizing what the world has brutalized into animal relationships, um, in contrast to lost daughters. And so he's like, what do lost daughters do? They're like, oh, well, good dad and mom. Like, like, cool, cool picture. Have a kid. And he's like, that's like the brutish animalistic instinct way of dealing with um, sex. And he says that's not what you find in Song of Solomon. What you find instead is, is this devotion to each other, this dignity, um, this talking, that they're, they're very communicative um, in their relationship. And so that's how he views um, the book, that there's this uh, typological drama going on, and that all of that points uh, for him to the relationship also of, of God with us. And he says um, in 8, 6 to 7, this is kind of the, the crux for him here, it set me as a seal in your heart, as a seal in your arm, for love is as strong as death. Ardent love is as unrelenting as Sheol. Love's flames are fiery flames, the fiercest of all. Mighty waters cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. And so he says, this is kind of the, the, the crux of it, that there's this aspect of love that is, is bigger than what's going on just in this drama. And this, this points forward or outside of us this additional love of God. And so this is where this idea of the, the typological um, interpretation comes into play on this. Um, as unrelenting as Sheol. Sheol means the place of the grave. It's just death. It's not hell. It's just it's death. And scriptures have talked about the fact that Sheol opens wide its mouth. Sheol is unrelenting. It's this whole idea kind of like in Ecclesiastes. Everybody's going to what? Die. Like, you're all going to end up in Sheol. You're all going to end up dead. And so but mightier than that are our love, or the flames of, of love. Now, we, we hear that, and we just think, like, emotional or, or maybe sexual. And um, he's saying more than that is even it's God's love. So, Walkie holds to this uh, dramatic, he refers to three characters. Um, Jerushi also sees some of the, the dramatic aspect to it. Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he refers to two characters. Um, but both of them push a little bit towards uh, the typological or typological um, interpretation of the book. <clears throat> what I'd like to do now is just mention some more things. Um, I don't have any more slides on it, so I'm just going to leave that one there. All right. But the book uses um, a lot of evocative language. More than any other book in Scripture, it uses evocative language, which is one of the reasons why so many people have um, interpreted it allegorically. It's like, there's no way that God inspired all this about sex and, and all this type of stuff, right? And um, the flip side of that is, um, I think, 
Tommy Nelson does a lot of seminars, has books on it and whatnot. And they're like, no, that's the whole point. Like, God cares about the practical. Like, he's got a whole book on on love and sex. So you find um, multiple uses of this evocative language. You know, kisses are with the mouth and and, uh, erotic, and that's the petrosocial uh, convention, you know, in, in the Book of Psalms. The language of love refers to sexual intimacy when one, two, and it's used elsewhere of the advances of the wayward wife, like in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 18. So, this isn't the only wisdom uh, portion in the Bible that, that deals with relationships or sex. It's got our Proverbs 5, uh, talks about it. Uh, talks about young men, you know, get a wife from your youth. It talks about Look at it real quick. Proverbs chapter um, 5. And then, you know, Proverbs 7 is about the, the adulterous woman. And Proverbs 31, you already know, is the, the lady wisdom. So you have all these different aspects. In fact, uh, while we're turning there, um, if you look in, um, you don't have to go to house page 2, but if you did, you would see that the law, the prophets, and the writings, and the canonical order of these books, and uh, Proverbs ends with chapter 31, which is this virtuous woman. That's what we call it, right? So it's kind of this embodiment of wisdom, right? In contrast to Proverbs 7, the adulterous woman, the next book after Proverbs is Ruth. Well, some would argue that Ruth is this embodiment of this virtuous woman. And then the book after Ruth is Song of Songs in the Hindu canon order. And so now we have this fleshed out again, like, in reality or allegorically, depending on, or typically, right? And so that's just something interesting about how the, the canon is, is ordered that way. So in Proverbs chapter 5, in, in verse 15, it says, Drink water from your own cistern and water fl- flowing from your own well. Is he talking about my water spigot, the faucet in the house? No, he's not. He's talking about relationships. He's talking about relationships with my, my wife. He's talking about boys and girls. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams of water in the public squares? They should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful fawn, let her breast always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. Why, my son, would you be infatuated with a forbidden woman or embrace the breast of a stranger? For a man's ways are before the Lord's eyes when he considers all his paths. So he spits in there that fear of the Lord stuff and there is judgment and God is watching. So that's some of the stuff that should temper what we do. A wicked man's iniquities entrap him. He's entangled in the ropes of his own sin. He will die because there's no discipline and be lost because of his great stupidity. So a lack of discipline leads you into uh, women's arms that you shouldn't be in. And we find the same thing uh, elsewhere in Scripture as well. And so you've got to have that discipline. You've got to you know, drive the foolishness out of your wayward son, right? Um, that's Proverbs chapter... He continues on in, in chapter 6. He has more warnings um, about adultery in chapter 6, verses 20 and following. And then in chapter 7, even more so in this seducing, adulterous woman, which leads into chapter 8 of Proverbs with the appeal of wisdom, which is also personified as a woman. So stop chasing down this woman on the street and go get the real lady, wisdom, which is how Proverbs ends, right? So I said all that come back to Song of Songs or Song of Solomon and how here now you got uh, if you interpret it as uh, a proper husband-wife relationship that the, the love and the, uh, the figurative expression of that that is shown in here 
these metaphors and similes are are not um, just about fruit. When he says, you know, you know, apricot tree among the trees of the forest, um, this is this is their love language talking to them. I don't know if it's five love languages or just the one thing. Right. Maybe it's six love languages. Is it just the love language of words you're using? I don't know. So, anyways, <coughs> then you've also got um, the allegory of the young girl reaching a physical maturity capable of love. In Ezekiel 16, 8, you are at the age for love. So the climax of love in the Song of Solomon is 4, 16 to 5. This is what Darusha says. Where full sexual union is described by the metaphor of eating fruit from a luscious God-given garden. So you're, you're reading about eating fruit, and you're like, it's not talking about every afternoon when I pick up my son and we go home and he has peanut butter and a banana, or peanut butter and apple. You know, this is, that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about, you know, sex between a husband and a wife. So... You also see um, in the evocative language, the girl celebrates shelter under her man's protection um, and clearly portrays rest in his, in his embrace. His left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. And so you have these uh, demonstrations all through here. Uh, as for the man, he reached the woman's body to her three different times, chapter 4, 1 to 15, chapter 6, 4 to 7, and chapter 7, 1 to 9, using the language of a garden and a vineyard full of precious spices and wine for the husband's pleasure. So, I mean, the text is basically assuming, proposing that, you know, she's naked as he's describing her. He's describing more than just what would be um, normally without clothes. So, um, the song also draws on a range of human activity to describe the beauty of love in tasteful ways. And so, even though there's an erotic aspect, even though there is a, um, a, a, a sensual uh, or sexual aspect to it, it's not... Um, it's not perverse. It's, it's not something that you would find on, a, you know, a perverse YouTube video or something like that, um, or a, a disrespectful rap. It's between, you know, the the lover and his beloved. Um, they use the, the nature uh, verbiage in, in two eight and nine. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. He's like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. So, you know, it's like a, a gazelle, a deer, you know, jumping over the cliffs. Um, so, <coughs> this uh, evocative language has served as the key instigator of a non-literal reading. This is why so many people have interpreted it allegorically. So it's like, no way, this is in here. And on top of that, I don't want to preach this, you know? So, um, it might be more of the latter than the former, I don't know. But anyway, <coughs> uh, Jerushi argues that this is actually connected with several other aspects and I just want to highlight uh, a couple of them. The, the theme, if, if you don't already know this, the theme of marriage and, and uh, covenant marriage is all through scripture. It's everywhere. Um, you could argue it begins in the garden. Definitely as you're reading the prophets, if you, if you have not known this before, you will see it all through the prophets. It, it's probably, um, you know, actually Seth, and, you know, maybe Jonah doesn't quite use it. Definitely, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it's all in there. Hosea, it runs through the entire book. So the idea of, of God, as we mentioned earlier in Ezekiel, has taken um, Israel, has taken this, this personified woman uh, as his wife and takes good care of her. And she has gone and she has uh, become a prostitute to the other nations. She has uh, cheated on her lover, her husband. And that whole idea is all through the prophets. 
talking about Israel. So, in contrast, the Song of Solomon presents what a covenant relationship would look like, or what a husband and wife marriage would look like, or as um, probably Jerusha Walkley would also argue, um, what God's love looks like towards us. pain, the sorrow, and the disgrace of covenant faithlessness is graphically portrayed in the book of Hosea. And yet with it comes the glorious vision of the coming restoration of the marriage covenant between Yahweh and his people. Israel will once again call Yahweh my husband in Hosea 2 and 14. As God allures and then betrothes his people, creating a new marriage covenant with his former bride. And so uh, Jerushi would argue that these metaphors uh, throughout the prophets even he, he mentions some stuff in Genesis that those all feed into um, and help argue the case that Song of Songs has a eschatological bent to it as well. Um, I think also uh, Jim Hamilton, Dr. Hamilton, who's written a seminal book on, I think I mentioned it to you before, um, Salvation and Judgment, or Salvation Through Judgment, something like that. He argues also that, uh, that quite likely Solomon intended, he holds that Solomon wrote it, okay, so he holds that there's a reality to it, a historical aspect, but uh, he, he poses the question and kind of answers in the affirmative that, that Solomon could have written this with an allegorical or maybe a, a typological, typological meaning to it um, as well. So... The, uh, he says, the king's uh, procession to the wedding in chapter 3, verse 6 to 11, seems to have been crafted to recall Israel being led out to Sinai for the wedding between himself and Yahweh, who would dwell with her in the tabernacle and lead her by the pillar of fiery cloud. But the strongest arm argument for this way of thinking about the song seems to me comes from Paul telling the Ephesians what marriage is ultimately about in Ephesians 5.32. The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Yahweh married Israel at Sinai, when she broke the covenant by going after other gods, she was eventually exiled, who was the prophets promising a renewal of the broken marriage, Hosea again, a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, and Jesus came calling himself the bridegroom in Matthew 9.15, being recognized as such by John the Baptist in uh, John 3.29, and laying down his life for his bride, Ephesians 5.25, that she might be clothed in white linen for the marriage feast of the Lamb. So Song of Songs presents as a poetic summary and interpretation of the Bible's big story, the descendants of David all the way through Jesus Christ, Yahweh incarnate, the, the one greater than Solomon, who initiated the new covenant between Jesus and his 
from the bride herself, the New Jerusalem, will descend from heaven having the glory of God. So Hamilton would argue also that there is the, he, he goes with the allegorical aspect to it. So that would kind of be um, a hermeneutical question as well, seeing that Hamilton has two, the two layers of the meaning of it. So to kind of wrap up, um, this, this uh, God's way of recapturing the fidelity, unity, and intimacy of marriage, um, which the enemy has tried to take away from God's people by making sex seem either uh, titillating outside of marriage or something shameful and unmentionable within marriage. And I think I do think that in our culture we really do have this oscillation between the two between the two. Um, like we need to have more real, frank conversations about real issues. Um, I always try to tell the the youth when I when I teach that uh, we can talk about anything. Anything, nothing's off limits. You just gotta be respectful. You know, you have to don't be vulgar with whatever you want to talk about. Be respectful with it. Um, and God has something to say about everything. That's the whole beauty of this God's word and wisdom. Um, <coughs> so um, we we can enjoy some of the the kingdom pleasures that God puts in our life. Um, some of the pleasures, even life under the sun, that God has granted and gifted uh, to us in the confines of of marriage. And that's what our sister tongue is calling us. people, young people, to don't awaken love before its proper time, and um, in its proper time, that they would be uh, faithful and glorify God and show love to their enemies. So, that's it on that. I got a, a video from Bible Project to summarize that for you.